Tonight, what would happen in the hours and days after Trump puts a tariff on our auto industry? It's September 13th and you're watching The Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here and you won't give them an answer. You come here once a year with a sign and you feel morally superior. The only thing I have to say to the government for why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. Yesterday, I asked Manny Montenegrino, our in-house NAFTA negotiations commentator, what he thought would happen if the NAFTA negotiations fail. It's the realm of hypothetical situations and guesswork scenarios, but when major companies enter into major complex negotiations, they surely map out different scenarios, right? Worst case scenario, best case scenario, most likely scenario. When military plans are drawn up, different scenarios are war-gamed. Same thing for banks, especially national banks. Economists model the future, make predictions. I suppose in a way that's what all of us are trying to do in our own ways. Figure out the future and then figure out what to do to make the future as good as we can. Maybe that's even a kind of description of life itself. So will you permit me if I engage in some guessing, some brainstorming? I'm not an economist. I'm not an expert in any particular discipline, but I, I want to think it through at least a little bit politically. Let's start with what experts have already said in public. They are testing Donald Trump's main threat of putting a 20% tariff on all Canadian-made cars imported to the United States. I mean, think about it. If a new vehicle in Canada was going to cost $50,000 and you slap on a 20% tariff, now it's going to cost $60,000 for the same thing. Well, obviously an American would buy the same or similar car made in the USA instead and save 10 grand. Or put it another way, since there are only a few different car companies in the world, they maybe would just move their factories to America. So the cars from them would not be subject to the tax. They might choose to leave enough factory capacity behind in Canada to service the Canadian market. It's a respectably sized market. One-tenth that of the United States is as big as California. But they pull any excess capacity that right now is being used to export almost a million cars to the U.S. duty-free. They just move that all down to Michigan or Ohio, which is exactly what Trump wants. It's exactly what he's been talking about for years, decades, in fact, by American hire, American. It's what he stands for. I mean, for a lot of pundits, the 2016 election was about gossipy things, fun things, ideological things, emotional things, aesthetic and stylistic things, Trump's vulgarity, Hillary Clinton's dishonesty. And for millions of Americans in the Rust Belt, though, it was only about jobs. I've shown you this clip before. I'll never stop showing it. Michael Moore, of all people, said it the best. Donald Trump came to the Detroit Economic Club and stood there in front of the Ford Motor executives and said, if you close these factories as you're planning to do in Detroit and build them in Mexico, I'm going to put a 35% tariff on those cars when you send them back and nobody's going to buy them. It was an amazing thing to see. No politician, Republican or Democrat, had ever said anything like that to these executives. And it was music to the ears of people in Michigan and Ohio and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, the Brexit states. That's what it was about for so many people. What is, so what, if, what if Trump does that, that stuff? 
I think I think he wants that. I think I think he wants to bring the factories back. Uh, and I'm starting to agree with Manny that Trudeau, well, that Trudeau actually wants the tariffs too. I think he wants a fight over NAFTA too. We showed you yesterday proof of this. This is what what made me ask Manny. Uh, Christia Freeland came back from NAFTA negotiations in Washington to appear on a panel discussion about how to deal with international tyrants. This video we're showing on the screen again right now. This was the video that started her talk. It demonizes Donald Trump as a tyrant and it compares him to Vladimir Putin and China's dictator Xi. And when the video ended, Christia Freeland, our foreign minister, basked in applause and smiled with approval. So you don't do that if you're negotiating in good faith with Donald Trump to get a deal. So let's assume both sides want NAFTA to fail. Trump wants to do what Michael Moore hoped he would, bring the factories back. Trump wants to bring the jobs to the American heartland. That's, that's who votes for him. He believes in it economically and strategically, and it would certainly lock up the 2020 election for him. Trudeau wants NAFTA to fail. Why? It's harder to understand. So he can portray himself as the great defender of Canadian honor against the evil Donald Trump. That's what he wants domestically because the Canadian media party will love him even harder if he fights Trump so openly. And Trudeau has always preferred foreign countries to his own. So he wants the love of every disgruntled leftist in Europe and every tin pot dictatorship in the third world. What's ironic about that is that most of the world has actually already readjusted themselves to Donald Trump whether it's North Korea or Israel or Saudi Arabia or Italy or Japan, they're over any aesthetic qualms they have with him. They're, they've decided it's in their interest to work with America, no matter who America's president is. And in fact, if they can crack the code for how to work with Donald Trump, maybe things can even be better for them. I think Japan has done that. I think the most amazing result is Mexico, of all the countries. Mexico, that Trump used to bash, they, they just got to deal with Trump. But Trudeau still wants to be the world's anti-Trump personality in Trudeau's circle of friends, his staff, his cabinet, his media party chums, they all agree with him. Okay, enough preamble, let's get to my predictions and I'd like your thoughts about whether or not you, you agree with me, you think I've forgotten certain things. Let's, let's start with the experts, okay? I've shown you this document a few months ago from Scotiabank that looks at several scenarios, including this one. Canada, the 20% tariff on trade with the US causes an economic recession in Canada Output shrinks by 1.8% in 2020, which would mark the first annual GDP contraction in Canada since 2009. So the worst recession in a decade, I believe it. Here's TD Bank. Here's what they say would happen. Given the concentration of the auto sector, Ontario bears the brunt of the impact with growth reduced by as much as two percentage points. Significant job losses also occur. Up to one in five Ontario manufacturing jobs could be at risk. This analysis includes only direct impacts. Supply chain and income shocks could magnify the economic impacts. So one in five manufacturing jobs just gone. That's devastating. By the way, it's not going that great right now. Anyways, I don't know if you saw this the other day. Here, here are the latest figures from just last week. You know, every, every month the, the jobs report comes out for the previous month. Um, let me quote to you the headline here. Canada's volatile employment report shows major job losses in August. I'll read a little bit from the story. The economy lost 51,600 net jobs last month in a decrease that helped drive the national unemployment rate to 6% up from 5.8% in July. Statistics Canada reported Friday in its monthly job force survey, uh, labor force survey. 
Can I just read one more line? Uh, Ontario lost 80,100 jobs last month after gaining 60,600 in July. So back to the TD Bank prediction, significant job losses also result with roughly 160K net positions shed relative to status quo. Almost all of these losses would occur in Ontario. So let's get down to predictions, okay? Here, here's how I think it'll go down if it happens. I think Trump will just let NAFTA expire. I think that's what Christian Freeland and, and Justin Trudeau are on, on track to do also. Just, just let it peter out. Uh, I, uh, if, if getting a deal were urgent and important, Freeland would have stayed down in Washington instead of coming up to Toronto to attend that weird anti-Trump rally. So she's not trying. She's doing as little as possible. She's out in Saskatoon today. As you know, Donald Trump tried to telephone Justin Trudeau last month. Trudeau didn't even take the phone call. So yeah, we're, we're just drifting now. So the U.S. Congress has been notified of Trump's deal with Mexico. Under the U.S. system, the president needs Congress's approval to sign a trade deal. They've, they've already been sent the U.S.-Mexico deal, and it says right in it that Canada can join if Canada wants to. That doesn't look like it's going to happen. Now, some people think that Congress will say no to this Mexican deal. What, to save Canada? They're, they're dreaming. It's, it's a deal that every blue-collar American can love because it limits cheap Chinese parts from being used in Mexican-made cars. And it requires a certain proportion of Mexican auto workers to be paid almost U.S.-style wages. And it brings in other U.S.-style regulations that will naturally boost the cost of Mexican imports to the U.S. So it will make them less competitive. It will make American workers so much more competitive. It levels the playing field between American workers and Mexican workers. Imagine being a Democrat and campaigning against a deal that protects American workers from cheap foreign imports. That'd be suicide. The Bernie Sanders wing of the Democrats is just as opposed to the old trade deals with Mexico and Canada as Donald Trump is. Um, this Mexican deal may have been struck by a billionaire Republican president, but it's actually what labor unions and working class Americans had hoped for for a generation. It's funny that a Republican gave it to him. So yeah, don't count on Congress blocking it, especially don't count on Democrats blocking it. So NAFTA will expire. Trump already pushed the button giving notice for that. And the U.S.-Mexico deal will come into fruition. So, so what happens without a NAFTA deal with Canada and the U.S., but a Mexico deal coming into place? Well, well, anything. Anything could happen if there's no treaty, no contract. I don't think Trump would attack Canada with a tariff on our cars out of the blue. I think Trump would say something like this tweet earlier this year where he said, Canada charges the U.S. a 270% tariff on dairy products. They didn't tell you that, did they? Not fair to our farmers. If I recall, he was in Wisconsin at that time. Maybe he's campaigning in Wisconsin in a few months, a dairy state. Maybe he's there for the November midterms, and he thinks that's a good time to give Canada a little jab. Or maybe he'll wait till later, a moment where he wants something from Canada, and he'll say, please give it to me. And uh, Trudeau won't take the call, or Trudeau will insult him, and Trump will slap back as promised. Look at the promise there again. Probably through a tweet, right? That's how Trump does a lot of these things. Probably written something like this one. I love Canada, but they've taken advantage of our country for many years. And then it'll be done. Trump can do that. He has the executive power to put a tariff on a country. He doesn't need to go to Congress for that. And anyone who thinks he's bluffing, and I think there's a lot of Canadians, oh, Trump's just bluffing, really? Ask China, the biggest rival economy in the world. Trump doesn't seem to even be close to blinking on his tariffs against China. Why would he blink with us when our economy is a fraction of China's? He's battering China. He doesn't care. Anyway, so however it happens, at whatever time, 
The real point is what happens next, the next minute. Well, here's a guess. First thing, especially if it's a tweet, shockwaves on social media, right? I mean, the U.S. business press will be concerned. They will be. They will point out technical challenges. They'll point out the fact that many cars are made literally on both sides of the Canada-U.S. border. Uh, an unfinished car part is taken across north or across south. There will be hiccups. Of course, there will be a pain for the auto industry. But Trump will, here's my guess, Trump will throw them a bone at the same time. He's been talking about what's called CAFE standards. You ever heard that phrase? It stands for Corporate Average Fuel Efficiency Standards, Economy Standards. It's an awful rule brought in during the bad 1970s. They kept making American automakers have to become more and more and more uh, environmentally extreme, effectively banning cars with big engines or the car companies would be punished. So it's hard for companies to make SUVs or pickup trucks that are popular, for example. It's a punitive regulation. It's anti-science. It was based on the paranoia in the 70s that the world was running out of everything, especially oil, which in fact, the opposite has happened. We've discovered so much more oil through fracking in the oil sands. Now the US itself is the world's biggest oil producer. So I bet, here's my theory how it's gonna go down, is simultaneously as Trump hits the auto industry with these tariffs. And listen, the auto industry is not going to like it. It's discombobulation. Yeah, I'm sure they would rather patriotically have a factory in America, all things being equal, but it'll be a hassle for them to uproot and move it, right? So Trump will throw that bone to the auto industry to smooth over any pain involved with repatriating those factories to the U.S. He'll give them their cafe fuel uh, standards removed. It's a guess. I mean, Trump's good at positive distractions, isn't he? And he's good at negative distractions, too. I'm sure he'll refer to some slight against him and against America by Canada. Perhaps even, I don't know, he'll refute, refer to Trudeau's decision to withdraw Canada's CF-18 jets from the war against ISIS. I don't know what he'll do. Maybe he'll talk about how Canada isn't lifting its load in, in NATO. I, I don't know. Something to put Trudeau on the back foot, but something that is true enough to resonate with American pride. Of course, the immediate reaction in Canada will be rage and fury at the evil Trump. Every left-wing activist and pundit will go full Trump derangement, including half of Trudeau's own MPs and cabinet and staff. They'll be unable to control themselves, and I don't think Trudeau will try to control them either. And I think a lot of bad things will be said and written in those first few hours that those people will regret, but the internet never forgets. I think a lot of damage will be done to the Canada-US relationship by these tariffs, obviously, but I think the insanity of the Canadian establishment's reaction will be just as bad. I think you will see physical violence. I know that sounds nuts, but I think you will. You'll see violence from Toronto's alt-left, the anti-foot types. I mean, they, they smash things up now with no cause. They'll have a violent protest outside the U.S. consulate. They'll get all whipped up. They'll, they'll smash things. Uh, you know, the Trump Tower in Toronto has been renamed. It's not called Trump Tower anymore, so maybe they won't smash its windows. But there's still a Trump Tower in Vancouver. I'm absolutely sure it'll be attacked either in a riot style or some vandalism stunt style. You'll see weird protests, but they won't be in support of the auto industry. That's the thing. They're, they won't be pro-jobs. We don't have pro-jobs protests in Canada. We didn't really have any pro-jobs protests for the pipelines that were killed, for the oil sands were killed. There's not going to be any pro-jobs protests. They'll just be anti-Trump protests. It's different. Uh, if the left actually cared about jobs, they would have said so. 
by now they would be lobbying Trudeau to get NAFTA done. Weirdly, Jerry Diaz, the head of Canada's Unifor Union that claims to represent auto workers here, he hasn't fought for a deal, he's fought against one. So no, you're not gonna see anyone suddenly caring about auto workers. They don't care about auto workers now. They'll just be bathing in anti-Trump hatred. I'm sure you'll see the craziest stuff from Elizabeth May. I mean, she's crazy as it is. She'll be the most anti-American, even though she was born in America herself. Uh, you'll see full tilt crazy from the NDP. I mean, they, they love to bash America. Uh, but don't think for a moment that you won't have Andrew Scheer and the weak wing of the Conservative Party join in too. They will probably portray themselves as sticking up for Canadian jobs, and I think they'll mean it too. But I know they won't be able to help, help themselves. They'll poke at Trump personally just so the CBC isn't mean to them. The CBC will put a camera and a microphone in Andrew Scheer's face and basically say, denounce Trump on our command or we will say you are anti-patriotic and you're a Trump lover. Well, we know what he does when he's put on the spot by the media like that. I mean, he threw the rebel under the bus just so they weren't mean to him. They'll, they will turn him into a Trump hater or they'll call him a Trumpist. And you know he's going to cave. For some reason, Jason Kenney of Alberta routinely pokes at Donald Trump in a weird way also. I don't think he's going to be able to keep quiet, even though Donald Trump is the only political leader right now building a pipeline to Alberta these days, the Keystone XL pipeline. I just don't think Jason Kenney's going to be able to, to let a, a shot pass by. I think it's going to take a shot. You'll see the left-wing globalists from around the world send their love and affection to Trudeau for being the anti-Trump leader. That will include every European leftist loser, of course, but it will mainly include American leftists. And don't forget how connected Justin Trudeau is and the liberals are with Hillary Clinton and the Democrats. Not just Trudeau himself, but his staff. And remember, Democrat staffers came up to Ottawa to help run Justin Trudeau's campaign, too. So you'll have all the U.S. Trump haters who will have a new hero. It'll be interesting to see where Michael Moore stands, but not really that interesting. I mean, it's just Michael Moore. Uh, the Michigan dream will be coming true. Factories will be coming back to Michigan. People will be hired. But I think Michael Moore and most of the left hate Trump more than they love Trump's jobs. I think the Canadian stock market obviously will be slaughtered and the Canadian dollar will be slaughtered. I mean, do, do you know one way that Canadian cars with a 20% tariff on them could still be affordable in the US? How could that possibly be? Well, what if the Canadian dollar fell by 20 cents in a week? I know that sounds devastating, but think about it. If you just discounted everything in Canada by 20%, 20% off sale, <laughs> then that car would cost the same as it did before the tariffs, right? Americans could still afford it because they would be using American dollars. They would be buying with their real greenbacks our mini bucks. So it's, it's a tiny version of, of Venezuela where, where currency is worthless. If you make money worthless enough, if you make your currency worthless enough, you can sell anything to the world. It just makes you poor because you're really not getting a lot for it because anything we import... Well, now we've got to pay 20% more with, with our cheap currency, whether it's fruit or electronics or obviously foreign travel. I don't think that can happen to wealthy countries. Remember, Detroit, Michigan used to be the highest paid city in terms of the industrial wage in all America. Now it's, it's an unemployed black hole. Venezuela, as we learned the other day with Daniel Pripes, used to have a higher GDP per capita than Canada. Look at it now. I'm not saying Canada will go that way or go the way of Argentina, but it is not impossible 
for countries to rise and then to fall. And it's not just the auto sector that the banks all talked about in their studies because this NAFTA fiasco, it wouldn't happen in a vacuum. Remember, it's happening at the same time that Justin Trudeau was destroying the oil and gas and pipeline industries and, and we can't get anything built and the courts and he's bringing in Bill C-69 to make it even harder. Look, Justin Trudeau really doesn't want any industry in this country. So you layer this new auto tariff on top of what he's doing and really, would you invest in Canada's economy if you were an international company? Not in the energy industry, that's for sure. Not in manufacturing, for any kind of manufacturing. And, it, and if a trade war is on, then, then maybe, it, it, maybe it's really on the war. I mean, maybe it escalates. Trump does that sometimes. Maybe Trump, while he's at it, wants to add, oh, access to our banking industry wants to add access to our cell phone industry. What I mean by that is that you could go and open up an account with Wells Fargo downtown or Citibank or whatever. I don't know what the American banks are. That's the thing. We don't know. We have the choice. What Canadian would be upset by that? If Trump wants access to our cell phone industry, I think Canadians would love, I think Canadians should hope we get American competitors for both. Wouldn't you like to be able to get better interest rates, lower fees at your bank, even if it were owned by American shareholders? Wouldn't you like cheaper cell phone service? Who wouldn't? Does any real Canadian actually love our cable or bank companies or our cell phone companies? I don't think so. Again, if a trade war is on, just like it is in dairy prices, maybe Canadians could wind up the winners after all if Canada finally agrees to do a deal. But in the meantime, expect every single thing to become more expensive. So to recap, if that tariff comes on, you got a plunging dollar, you got a plunging stock market, you got auto factories getting ready to relocate to America. Same thing for the support industries for the auto industry, thinking of relocating to America. Or frankly, to Mexico, why not? Now that they have a deal and we don't. Investment freeze, total investment freeze. Who would put money into any part of the Canadian economy to build a factory if those factory products couldn't enter the US too? I suppose if the whole country became cheap enough because of a low dollar and an investment drought, maybe someone could come in and buy things at a salvage value. Maybe it would be Americans, I don't know, Warren Buffett, or maybe some of Justin Trudeau's best friends in China. Don't laugh. They still have a lot of foreign currency just sloshing around, and Canada will be on sale, remember. All the banks say we'll be in a recession. You saw their studies. Imagine how real estate prices will fall, especially in Toronto. I'm not just talking about individual Chinese people buying up cheap real estate personally. I'm talking about massive investments by Chinese companies, buying Canadian companies that are damaged or underpriced. It's just a possibility. Now, the media party will be unanimous about all this. It's Trump's fault. Trudeau's the hero who bravely fought for Canada and Canadian pride. He protected us. Or at least he protected Quebec's few thousand dairy farmers and he protected the CBC. Those are the last two deal breakers for Trudeau in this fake negotiation, the dairy industry and cultural industries. For that, he'll kill the auto industry and so much more. The media party knows it will be the right thing to do because Trump. But for 160,000 auto workers, that means 160,000 families. Yeah, I don't think they'll be able to get over the fact that they're now unemployed and 
anyone whose retirement savings are now worthless because of our dollar or our stock market, that will be hard to understand. Anyone who's socked away their life savings in their house that's now worth 30% less, that'll be hard to understand. And the recession and the reduction in tax revenues to the government, so the government cutbacks to social services and the higher interest rates. That's what a trade war with Trump will look like. If you doubt it, ask Turkey. Trump just tweeted about a trade war. Bam! Their economy went into a tailspin. I don't want any of this to happen, by the way. I wanted the deal Trump offered Trudeau on live TV. Remember this? Justin has agreed to cut all tariffs and all trade barriers between Canada and the United States. A quicker-witted prime minister would have said, you've got a deal, Donald. Now let's go play golf since we're done. But Trudeau doesn't want a deal, does he? He wants a hateable enemy. And Donald Trump wants more factories. I think they'll both get what they want. Everyone will be happy, <laughs> except Canadian workers. Stay with us for more. Welcome back. Well, I have told you that in my view, Scanning the world for all the issues out there, whether it's globalism, open borders, mass migration, terrorism, taxes, trade deals, whatever the issue is, I still believe that censorship and political bias in high-tech companies is the number one issue of our age because it stops us from having a conversation about any of the other issues because you're banned or unpersoned on the internet. And people have said, no, that's not true. That's not true, it's not biased. You're exaggerating, that's fake news. And anyone who's thrown under the bus, well, they're radical like Alex Jones. Well, now, shocking proof of the most persuasive variety comes in the form of a videotape obtained by Breitbart.com. This video is of a major staff meeting at Google headquarters days after Donald Trump's 2016 presidential election victory. It's a all hands on deck staff meeting led by the CEO and the senior, the senior uh, C-suite leaders of the company, the chief financial officer, for example, they're all in there. And it can only be described as a collective corporate funeral for the Democrats. And you can watch the entire video uh, which was obtained. It's a confidential internal video of this staff meeting. It was obtained by Breitbart. You can see the whole video on their website. But without further ado, let me introduce to you uh, again my favorite reporter at Breitbart who got this tape. And then we're going to go through four highlights from the video together. Alan Bukhari joins us now via Skype. Alan, welcome to the show. Did I properly explain the nature of this video more or less? We'll see it in a minute. But is that, is, is that what happened? Uh, yeah, Ezra, that, that's, that's pretty much what happened. So Google uh, held these all-hands meetings. Uh, they're called TGIFs. They held them every week. 
Um, and uh, this was the one right after the election. And as you said, uh, they're, they're essentially uh, it's a funeral atmosphere. Uh, Hannity on, on Fox News yesterday described as a, as a funeral for America. Hmm. Uh, this is the company that claim they're not biased, that claim they're welcoming to all opinions. And the sa- at the same time, they've got top executives going on stage and comparing uh, Trump voters to xenophobes uh, filled with hatred, motivated by fear. Uh, Sergey Brin says uh, Trump voters share the same motivations as fascists and communists and extremists. Uh, there are, there's so much material in this in this one-hour video. Uh, I'd strongly recommend that all your viewers go and watch it in its entirety on Breitbart.com. Absolutely, and uh, this videotape it's marked private for internal use only. It's amazing and so important that it was revealed. Um, you'll see not only the entire leadership of Google there, Sergey Brin, the name you, you mentioned, he was the mathematical genius behind uh, the Google algorithm that got it all started 20 odd years ago, other senior leaders, and you, you can see there's a point where the camera pans to the crowd. It's, it's basically their staff gathered in their large theater um, to get an indoctrination. Without further ado, let me, we have four clips and I'm going to try and get through as many of them as we can. Here's a first one that just sets the tone. These are corporate leaders, and you're right, it is like they're at a funeral for a loved one, the loved one in this case being Hillary Clinton. Here, take a look. Most uh, people here are uh Pretty upset and pretty sad because of the election. I'm glad uh, we're getting together uh, at a moment like this. And I think it's a very stressful time. It's been an extraordinarily stressful time, I'm sure, for uh, many of you. There is a lot of fear within Google. I'm seeing Googlers who are full of fear. There are people who are very afraid. They're full of fear about the future. They're full of fear about what the uncertainty means for them and their families. It's uncertain for many of us here, um, you know, especially immigrants or minorities, uh, women. Women, blacks, you know, people who are afraid based on religion, the LGBTQ community. Well, I would just advise us all to be calm. You know, there's a GCOM place on, that you can go to and just take a, take a breath. Healing is a process, it does take time. As an immigrant and a refugee, I certainly find this election uh, deeply offensive. It did feel like a ton of bricks dropped on my chest. Trump specifically, who I know many of us find very offensive. And I've had a chance to talk to a lot of fellow Googlers and people have said different words, similar concept, how painful this is. Uh, just incredible. The, the fellow with the beard is Sergey Brin, who I refer to as the mathematical genius, but the other staff there, they're all very, very senior executives. You know, it's one thing, Alum, for people at a company to go out to a bar after work and shoot the breeze about the election. We all talked about this momentous election. Um, every American, everyone around the world has an opinion on Donald Trump. That's fine. But this was an official staff meeting on company time at a company office with a company imprimatur. This wasn't just some people bantering over beer and chicken wings. This is the official corporate yeah, view. Go ahead. And you have to remember that this company claims to be welcoming to diverse viewpoints. They're currently fighting a lawsuit against former employees who allegedly they were discriminated against on the basis of uh, uh, political viewpoints. Uh, and you can see why when uh, Google executives are going up on stage, uh, breaking down in tears because, the, you know, because of the democratic election, uh, promising to use the company's resources to prevent future outcomes, uh, brainstorming ways they can make that happen. 
uh, talking about history being on their side, uh, comparing Trump voters to, uh, to xenophobes. I mean, the, the list goes on. There's just so much material here. Well, we'll get to clips that show those very things you say. Um, you know, calling Trump offensive, saying these things are devastating and hurtful and a ton of bricks. If there was a Trump supporter in that room, and out of the hundreds of people in that room, there probably was one or two, you wouldn't dare let everyone know. I mean, you, we, you saw the executives, it's, if you're an immigrant, a minority, LGBT, all of those minorities are safe at Google. They even have a Google Calm place, like a yoga Zen place. But if imagine someone mm. standing up in that meeting and saying, well, actually, I love Google. I'm a very hardworking person but I, at Google and loyal employee, but I exercise my democratic right to vote for Trump. The screams, they would have been fired that second. Obviously, no one did that. They would be too terrified. Uh, they, it's like they were talking yeah, you, about you saw, you saw one guy at the end of the video. You saw one guy at the end of the video ask uh, the executives, uh, do you see any positive outcomes from the election? And the, you know, the entire audience burst out laughing. Huh. Yeah. I mean, the the group thing is insane. It would be like it would be like standing up and saying, I'm a Nazi. Is that okay?" that they were talking about Donald Trump and more than 60 million Trump voters as if they were Nazis. Here, let's play the second clip. Mm. This is from when uh, I think the chief uh, financial officer um, is very interesting here. She talks about a conversation she had with the with someone in the Hillary Clinton victory night party that turned, of course, into a defeat. She doesn't say the Democrats or Hillary Clinton or they. She says we, first person plural. And she's a Google executive at a Google meeting talking to Googlers and says we lost, we. So it couldn't be clearer that, the, that it was just assumed that Google was part of the Democrat machine, which they were. Take a look at, at this CFO named Miss Porat. Take a look. 8.30 p.m. on Tuesday night, I was at home with friends and family watching the election returns. And uh, as we started to see the direction of the voting, I reached out to someone close to me who was at the Javits Center where the big celebration was supposed to occur in New York City, somebody who had been working on the campaign. And um, I just sent him a note and said, you know, are you okay? It looks like it's going the wrong way. And I got back a very sad short text um, that read, people are leaving, staff is crying, we're going to lose. That was the first moment I really felt like we were going to lose. And it was this massive like kick in the gut that we were going to lose. And it was really painful. It did feel like a ton of bricks dropped on my chest. And I've had a chance to talk to a lot of fellow Googlers and people have said different words, similar concept. This, how painful is it? How painful this is it? She said, we were going to lose. And she's crying. Mm-hmm. About yeah. And you know, actually, Eric, Eric Schmidt, the CEO of Alphabet Google's, uh, formerly the CEO of Alphabet Google's parent company, who was CEO during the 2016 election, he attended Hillary Clinton's victory uh, uh, victory party, and uh, he was wearing a, a Clinton staff badge. Uh, that's how seriously he took it. Yeah. And he was offering to help the Clinton campaign win as early as 2014. Yeah, incredible. Um, they really, I mean, the, the tears, the crying, the the maudlin, over-the-top emoting, uh, 
there's funny memes on the internet about people crying and shrieking at, at Trump's uh, result. And those are taken as radical examples of social justice warriors. That is company practice at the highest levels of the executive suites in Silicon Valley. What we laugh at is over the top social justice warriors. That's normal in Silicon Valley. That's crazy to me. Yeah. And the, yeah, at one point, uh, the, the same uh, executive, uh, Ruth Pollard, uh, uh, advises everyone in the audience to do a group hug. Yeah. Uh, you would consider this to be like a weird, over-the-top reaction, just if it was like a regular adult, you know, just breaking down at an election result. Uh, but, you know, these are the uh, executives and the co-founders of the most powerful technology company in the world. So we should all be very worried yeah. that, you know, you've got this mass hysteria at the top of this company. You know, if, if there had been a death of Sergey Brin or, or the other uh, Larry Page or some of the, 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 the inspiring founders of the company, I, I would imagine, you know, there would be tears like that and hit like in a gut and hug each other. If, if it was actually a funeral for someone they knew personally and had an emotional lifelong investment in. That's how you talk at a funeral for a loved one. That, that's their emotional reaction to an election defeat of a party candidate. Um, it's not normal, but it's normal there. I, I wanna show, um, I wanna get through two more clips because you and I, it's fun to talk about it, but people have to see the clips for themselves. And I, I reiterate your invitation to our viewers to go to Breitbart.com, watch the whole vid in its entirety. Check out this one when another senior executive says that Google, in the wake of this loss, has to get into the arena, has to become a player even more than it was. Take a look. Uh, audience question, yes. Uh, one of the main messages I've gotten from all of you today is that this election and others like it around the world are a hiccup in history's arc towards progress. But uh, what makes you so sure about that? I mean, is this a relatively new arc or is this the same arc that has included two world wars? Mm. Since it's my metaphor, I'll take it up. Um, the, the, there are no guarantees, right? And there are, hiccup is a kind word. There, history is not a linear pattern. We do everything we can to keep it moving in a good direction. Uh, if you look over the broad reach of any 20, 50, 100 year period, there's less death, life, and life expectancy goes up. People are doing better and more prosperous. The arc does go like this exponentially in terms of standards of living around the world. Yes, it's not completely smooth. It goes up and down. And I think history teaches us that there are periods of populism, of, of nationalism that rise up. And we, that's all the reason we need to be in the arena. That's why we have to work so hard to make sure it doesn't turn into a world war or something catastrophic, but instead is a blip, is a hiccup. Oh my God, they're actually comparing Trump's victory to the, the causes of the First and Second World War and put aside their crazy analysis, it's their prescription that I'm truly worried about. They are now in the arena, they are determined as a company to stop what they say as an improper choice from America that is going down the wrong path of history. Yeah, and not just America, uh, that, that uh, executive, Kent Walker, he, uh, he talks about populists rising up uh, around the world 
uh, nationalism rising up around the world. And that, that's what he wants to stop. He wants Google to use its global influence, its global reach. So it's not just about suppressing uh, uh, populist movements in America. It's not about suppressing the Trump movement. It's about suppressing populists everywhere. You know, that's a great point because, of course, shortly after the American election, there was the French election. Uh, there was elections throughout Europe that have uh, similar nationalist or populist or conservative points of view. And we saw the tech companies take a very heavy hand there. Um, I want to play another one. And this is what's interesting. We saw Sergey Brin, that's the mathematical genius, who claimed that he was an immigrant and a refugee. And indeed, when he was a very little boy, I think he was six or seven, he came with his family. They emigrated from the Soviet Union. And we all know the former Soviet Union was a terrible place. Uh, it was communist. It was not a democracy. Uh, I just want to say, Alan, because I think it's sort of funny, uh, I, would, I would never want to have lived in the Soviet Union. And I think it was very uh, for, far-sighted of Sergey Brin's parents to apply to leave the Soviet Union in the 70s, which when there was a brief period of time detente between Jimmy Carter and Brezhnev, where mainly Jews said, we want to get out of Russia. They applied for an exit visa. They were almost always fired from their jobs right away. But they did, in fact, get out. Um, and they moved to the West. And thank God that happened for Sergey Brin's parents. And they were free. Their son was free. And Google was created. But that's not actually a refugee. I mean, that's someone, I mean, if, if simply being born in the Soviet Union uh, or a dictatorship like China is being a refugee, then you've got billions of refugees. I think he's hamming, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that living in the Soviet Union was good. I'm glad they left. I'm not saying it was easy to leave, but he was not in imminent danger as the term refugee under the UN definition implies. I think he's trying to ham it up. I think he was trying to, to say that, it, that he was a victim too, instead of actually being the world's 10th richest man uh, with a bit of a messiah complex about changing how people think. I think there was just a, the cult of victimology and other people in that room had it. Sergey Brin, who's a billionaire white guy, was sort of saying, no, 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 I'm with you. I'm a refugee, I, I'm just like you, I'm in danger. There was something weird there about him calling himself a refugee. Am I overstating the point there, Alan? Yeah, I mean, the, the left overuses the term refugee in general. They, they've used it to describe economic migrants uh, in, in the uh, European refu uh, migrant crisis. Uh, so the left overuses the term, too. I think Sergey Brin probably has more right to claim that uh, title than, uh, say, the economic migrants who are flooding into Europe at the moment. Uh, but yeah, you're right, they're absolutely hamming it up. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, these guys are not victims. They're the most powerful company in the world. And... Um, and, uh, you know, we, we should be asking questions about wh whether this company requires oversight, given the amount of influence they have. Yeah. Well, you know, perhaps I've overstated that uh, that refugee point, but I just thought you're, you, you're worth $50 billion, mate. You're not, you're not uh, weak and vulnerable. And if you're feeling scared and terrified, uh, that's because you're an emotional, you lack emotional self-control. But it, it feeds into the fourth and final clip. Here is a straight white male and I got nothing against straight white males being one myself, who stands up at this Maoist meeting in Google and engages in some self-denunciation and calls on all others in the room to denounce themselves. And Sergey Brin and the other leaders cheer him. Take a look at this, Alan. I'd like your thoughts on it. Yes. Or, sorry, I'll take one at each mic. Sorry, sir, maybe. Uh, speaking yeah. to white men, there is an opportunity for you right now to understand your privilege in the society 
take the opportunity to go through the bias busting training, read about privilege, read about the real history of oppression in our country, and tomorrow night, watch 13th, the movie that is here. If you can't watch it here, watch it on Netflix. Discuss the issues you are passionate about during Thanksgiving dinner, and don't back down and laugh it off when you hear the voice of oppression speak through metaphors, and I promise to do this. Self-denunciation, that is They're a applauding racism. Tactic. Sorry, go ahead. What do you say? They're applauding racism. That, that he's calling for discriminatory, measure, discriminatory measures against white men. He says white men have to take the special bias-busting course. And instead of calling him out on, you know, clearly radical, Maoist, race-baiting uh, rhetoric, uh, all the Google executives uh, give him a standing ovation. Uh, that's 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 bizarre. And remember, Google is facing a lawsuit that says they discriminate not just on the basis of political view, but also on the basis of gender and race against white and Asian males. Uh, and you know, I, I think we, see, we that's a clear example. You've got Google executives applauding a radical race-baiting speech about white privilege. Yeah. Now, I got to say that if if there was some company like there there are little coffee shops here and there that are really political coffee shops. I'm sure that's the same in your neighborhood too. They probably have a, you know, a Marxist theme and everyone there is a vegan activist and it's a real left-wing hangout. I, I think that's part of the coffee shop culture has been for centuries even probably. Um, and if you don't like it, you don't go to the coffee shop, you go, you go to the corporate Starbucks, I guess. Google is not some corner coffee shop where you expect everyone to be a brooding, emo, left-wing, goth socialist. Google is not just a company, it's the most important company that can control our perception of the world because they can delete you and you're never found again. They can unperson you, they can bias, they can tilt things. Google owns YouTube, for example, and we've suffered their demonetizations. They've simply decided, one of the, one of the uh, outcomes of this meeting was they decided to demonetize any conservative social media sites, including the Rebel. And it happened in January, two months after this meeting. Suddenly, they turned off the taps. They refused to give us advertising access on our millions of views. They cut our income by 85%. That's what happens uh, when it's not just some corner coffee shop that's gone full social justice warrior, but the largest tech company in the world. That's what scares me, Alan, is not just that these are laughable freaks, harmless in a coffee shop, sort of harmless in a university. This is the company that controls everything we see and hear and even think. Yeah, and uh, it's time for Republicans to wake up and get moving on this issue because midterms are less than two months away. This might be their last chance to fix the problem. Yeah. And uh, we, we, I did, we did see uh, Brad Parscale tweeting about it, uh, saying there needs to be an investigation. Uh, Ronald McDaniel, the RNC chairwoman, tweeted about it. Uh, but you know, they've got to go beyond tweets and start taking action now if, if, if they want to avert disaster, because this is a crisis for democracy. Uh, the, these companies have vast, unaccountable power over uh, the flow of information on the internet and the decisions we make. Uh, and it, it's time uh, to address that, I think. Yeah. When you mentioned Brad Parscale, that's uh, Donald Trump's 2020 re-election campaign manager. One last question for you, being very generous with your time, Alan. Thank you. Um, I found this video riveting in its substance. You have world-famous 
tech tycoons engaging in extremist behavior that you would expect from pink-haired wackos, you know, in first-year university. Like, it's, it's so weird to me to see billionaires acting like spoiled brat leftist trust fund kids at, you know, some Ivy League school. That's what's substantively crazy. It informs the discussions about bias. But just from a sheer gotcha point of view, you got a secret internal video of a private meeting stamped confidential. That in itself is a blockbuster. If this were an internal, imagine if you got the Exxon Mobil <coughs> internal uh, staff video after Obama's election in 2008. I'm just making something up. If you had a, a politically uh, charged mega company that was engaging in hysterics so totally partisan, I mean, imagine if you got the Smith & Wesson or the AR-15 company video about Hillary. It's newsworthy on the face of it. It's newsworthy in substance. It's newsworthy in its scale. It's newsworthy by every measure. Have you seen this video, your scoop here, picked up on ABC, NBC, CBS, MSNBC, The New York Times, Washington Post, our Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, your British Broadcasting Corporation? Uh, well, it, it obviously hasn't. Uh, it, it's not leading those shows. Uh, they're not going to do that. Uh, you know, they'd rather talk about Stormy Daniels and, you know, fake Russian conspiracy theories, obviously. But, uh, you know, there's actually been a surprising number of mainstream reporters who, you know, admitted, uh, I've seen like, more more than one mainstream report on Twitter saying, well, I've never linked to Breitbart, but this is a good story. Oh. Uh, you know, the, the, the New York Times did write a piece about it. Uh, they, they tried to um, they tried to make Google look good a little bit, but it was a fairly good write-up. Uh, Business Insider admitted it was a good scoop. Uh, the Financial Times reporter admitted it was a good scoop. Uh, CBC did something. Um, yeah, it's not leading their coverage, but uh, even they can't ignore it completely. I'm very glad to hear that, but it's one thing for someone on Twitter to say, attaboy, as opposed to if they put it on TV, because I think our viewers would agree, it's one thing for you and I to banter about this, but seeing the video mm -hmm. yourself, you can't unsee it. You won't unremember it, and you know how bad it is, mm -hmm. and I think until this video becomes as famous on TV is Donald Trump's pussy grab video, let's say. It won't have mm. its proper place in, in media coverage. Alan, it's great to talk to you. Thanks for spending uh, so much time with us and congratulations again on this international scoop. Thanks, Ezra. All right, there you have it. That's Alan Bokaria, one of our favorite guests. He's the senior technology correspondent at Breitbart News. Stay with us. More Head on the Rebel. Hey, welcome back on my monologue yesterday about one of Trudeau's Syrian migrants getting charged with murdering a 13-year-old Vancouver girl, Liza writes. Christian refugees just aren't in this year. You know, I, I, I try not to criticize the Pope. I just don't feel comfy criticizing Christians because so many leftists do so. I don't want to pile on, and I'm Jewish myself, so I don't have the inner knowledge of things. But I just wish the Pope would fight for Christians who are being targeted I mean, I saw with my own eyes what was going on in Iraq. And I know that's just Iraq. That's how Christians all over the Muslim world are treated. In Egypt, 
the president of Egypt is sympathetic to the Coptic Christian minority, but they're attacked all the time there. Um, obviously, Saudi Arabia is horrific for Christians. I don't even think there really is a Christian population there anymore. China, terrible for Christians. They have an official state church that really puts communism above God. Pakistan is a horrible place for Christians. Nigeria, where, where the terrorist groups kidnap en masse Christians and force them to convert or kill them. I don't think I've ever heard the Pope talk about that. Why? Why? I, I just wish he would. Um, maybe it's too much to think Justin Trudeau would stand up for Christian minorities in peril, but I, I just wish more Christian leaders would. And when I saw that that left-wing church in Vancouver had sponsored this single male migrant Muslim of military age, I was thinking, of all the seven billion people in the world, this guy was the most deserving of your Christian charity? I just don't get it. All right. Ted writes, Trudeau's actions as prime minister are putting Canadian lives at risk, and in this case, have destroyed a Canadian life. Well, of course, we must wait for the court to weigh the evidence and convict or acquit. But if the police, after their massive investigation, I, I've never heard of an investigation that big. If the police have charged this guy with first-degree murder, it sounds to me like they believe they have enough to make the case. Otherwise, I don't think they would have laid the charge. I'm not saying he's guilty, but I'm saying uh, I bet he's going to be convicted just based on the amount of investigation done and the level of the charge, the first-degree murder charge. You don't put a charge like that if you're not confident. On my interview with Manny Montenegrino about Trudeau and Christy Freeland sabotaging NAFTA negotiations, Paul writes, Picking a fight with Trump as a means to get reelected is a very stupid strategy. I don't know why we're supposed to believe that the disaster will be limited to the auto sector. I wouldn't assume that. Banks, telecom, etc. I wouldn't assume anything would be off the table. You know, isn't it funny you say that? I did not read this letter before I, I uh, said my monologue and I brainstormed about those very subjects. Now, again, it was Manny who pointed those things out. I mean, think about the size of the cell phone cable business. It's huge, right? I mean, maybe cultural industries just means the CBC, but communications, uh, I think, I, mean, I don't have the stats at my fingertips, but I think Canadians pay amongst the highest cell phone bills in the developed world um, per minute for data, things like that. And we don't have a lot of competition. Was there maybe four companies of any note? Wouldn't it be something if Verizon and other U.S. companies came in, and you don't have to switch. If it's really important to you to give your money to the billionaire named Rogers as opposed to the billionaire named Shaw or whatever, you know, I mean, if, if you really feel emotional about your cell phone company, I've never met anyone who doesn't hate their cell phone company, stay with them. But wouldn't you love it if some foreign cell phone companies came in and said, we'll give you half price data, half price calling, you know that's not a special deal, that's just how it is. How can you say no to that? Same with the banks. Imagine they said no service fees on our ATMs or any other ATMs and, you know, we're open. I, I don't know what they would say, but wouldn't you, even if you stayed with your current bank, the introduction of foreign competitors would make your bank get its act together. By the way, banks and cell phone companies are very profitable in Canada. Uh, I think competition wouldn't put them out of business. My point is exactly how ironic it would be that Donald Trump, in fact, is the one that actually fights for Canadian 
consumers. He's the one building the Keystone XL pipeline to Alberta. Thank you, Donald Trump. He could be the one to bust up the dairy cartel and make food cheaper for all Canadians. Thank you, Donald Trump. And he could be the ones to get the one that gives us cheap cell phone and cheap banking. I just don't want to pay the price of losing our auto industry. And for the life of me, when the President of the United States says we're willing to say goodbye to all tariffs, how could any person in the world not say, please, me, now? Is there any country out of the 200 or so countries in the world that wouldn't swap positions with us to be geographically neighboring, culturally, linguistically, historically so tied with America, and then to have America's president say, all right, we can just do away with all tariffs. Thank you. That's the best of all worlds. You get full access to the American economy, but you still have a border, so you don't have to take Americans you don't want. In Europe, the EU, they have no economic barriers, but they have what they call the Schengen Zone where Europeans can move from Germany to France and all around. And, and that's what's caused the great dislocation. Imagine if you have full access to the American economy, no tariffs, but you still have a border so you could still run Canada as Canadian. Oh my God, that's the dream of generations. But Trudeau loves his dairy farmers or more likely just wants to fight. Don't get me started again, folks. All right, well, that's our show for today. What do you think? I tried you know, sort of an artistic performance art experiment of brainstorming what would happen if the tariffs were brought in. Who knows, maybe after a few days they would be so devastating that some grown-up would tap Trudeau on the shoulder and say, buddy, don't go forward with this. We've had a week of pain uh, just from the shock of it, but there will actually be factories shutting down in a matter of weeks if you don't pull back. So maybe he would pull back from death's door. But I have yet to see that grown-up figure in the liberal circles after three years. I don't think he exists. All right, folks, let's leave it there. On behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, to you at home, good night, and keep fighting for freedom.